This week on Life and Faith. He had a stack of them that he put in the glove compartment of his car. And those were days when it wasn't dangerous at all to pick up hitchhikers. And he would often engage such people in a conversation and they would receive a copy of Mere Christianity on the way out. The, the book that Dad gave to these hitchhikers was really one of the best hitchhikers guides the galaxy in existence. And I maintain that it still is. I'd recommend it to anybody. Art is absolutely useless, therefore it's essential. It's not no more being, it's just no more of the ticking of the clock. Raising a person, that's a complex task. I was surprised, I was surprised, it was surprised. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore, and today we're celebrating, I think, quite a special anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. It's 80 years this week since the man who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, fronted up to a microphone at the BBC in London in the middle of the Second World War and gave the first of a series of broadcasts that would end up having a remarkable and enduring influence on many, many people. It was more than a decade later that the words Lewis spoke that evening became part of a book called Mere Christianity. In that first talk, he didn't even mention Christianity. He spoke to his fellow citizens at a desperate time for all of them about why we humans even believe in right and wrong. Lewis's message found traction among his listeners, and it's found far more traction among many more people since than he could ever have imagined. Mere Christianity has sold millions of copies and been translated into at least 36 languages. During the communist era in Eastern Europe, it was distributed in Czech from one worker's basement and was known as the Blue Book. In China today, it's the book after the Bible that many Chinese Christians are most likely to have read. The list of people who've read it, admired it, hated it, had their lives changed by this one pretty short book is staggering. Atheists and Christians, scientists and politicians, Catholics, Protestants, Mormons, pastors and teenagers. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens, one of the highest profile atheists in the world at the time, called Lewis the main chosen propaganda vehicle for Christianity in our time. Lewis had been dead for nearly half a century at this point. Now, this episode is not exactly a love letter to mere Christianity. I mean, there have been plenty of criticisms of the book over the years, and some of them probably valid, but let's be honest here, we're both big fans of the book. And 80 years on from that first recording, we wanted to hear from some other people who it's also been significant for. So it's not far off a love letter. A celebration, anyway. <laughs> right. Let's begin by hearing from the man himself. That first recording hasn't survived, but here's a bit from one that does. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. The accent is a lot, I know. This is a mid-century Oxford Don, remember. Think about the crown. Though actually, Lewis was from Northern Ireland originally. In this broadcast, Lewis started out answering questions listeners had sent in, including one about how prayer can possibly work. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all 
in that one little snippet which we call 1030. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning to the end of the world is always present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has infinity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. The first of Lewis's broadcast talks was on the evening of Wednesday, the 6th of August, 1941, from 7.45 to 8pm. The timing had to be exact, 15 minutes, no more, no less, because at the time, if there was any dead air in a broadcast, the German propagandist known as Lord Haw Haw, broadcasting on the same wavelength, could cut in with Nazi messaging. When the BBC asked Lewis to give these talks, the Blitz was still ongoing. Broadcasting House in London was bombed twice. One time it could be heard on the air. Fortunately for Lewis, the bombing was over by the time he gave his first talk in August. That's difficult, I know. Can I try to give something not the same, but a bit like it? Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her book, next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who's got to live in the imaginary time of the story, there's no interval between putting down the book and hearing the knock. But I, her creator, between writing the first part of that sentence and the second, may have gone out for an hour's walk and spent the whole hour thinking about Mary. I know that's not a perfect example, but it may just give a glimpse of what I mean. The thing to remember about these talks and the book that they became is that they were not for Christians. If you think this was a more religious time, think again. It was estimated that two-thirds of BBC listeners lived without any reference to God. A survey of British Army recruits at the time found that only 23% knew the meaning of Easter. And Lewis himself had been an atheist not so long before, So he understood where the unchurched or indifferent were coming from. The point I want to drive home is that God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the lump. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. In 1941, Lewis is pretty much unknown to the British public. But by 1947, he was a household name, not only in his own country, but across the pond. In September 1947, he appeared on the front cover of Time magazine, and the accompanying article described him, along with poets like T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, as one of a growing band of heretics among modern intellectuals, an intellectual who believes in God. Now, I spoke to another Oxford Don who's also a friend of CPX, the mathematician, and, in Lewis's footsteps, Christian apologist John Lennox, who remembers Lewis in the flesh. I went up to Cambridge in 1962 in October, and because I was already a C.S. Lewis aficionado, having benefited greatly from reading almost all of his books, I knew that he was still in Cambridge. I did not know he was very ill. But 
the university authorities persuaded him to give a lecture in the Michaelmas term 1962. And the lecture rooms where he was speaking were just across the road from the mathematics department. I found out when they were, and I'm afraid I skipped a few maths lectures just to cross the road surreptitiously and join the vast throng of people sitting in the windows and on the floor and everywhere else listening to Lewis. There was no health and safety rule in those days. I came in that way to listen to some of the very last lectures he gave on John Donne. It was a very, very cold winter and he was a big burly chap. The lecture hall had double doors and at the exact second of the start, he would burst in through the double doors, complete with his coat and hat and scarf, and he would just start lecturing and uh, carefully picking his way among the students sitting on the floor. He would lecture and increase in volume as he took off his various garments. He'd take off his hat, unwind his scarf, take off his coat, and all that was completed just as he reached the podium. So by that time, you'd already had two or three minutes of a absolutely brilliantly worded lecture. But it was so amusing because he lectured, I think, for exactly 50 minutes. And then he reversed this process. He kept lecturing as he put on his hat, coat, wound up the scarf, picked his way through the students. And the last words were uttered as he burst out of the double doors. There was no time for Q&A. Do you remember much of what he said? Not really, because he was lecturing to the English people on John Donne's poetry and, and its subtleties. What I can remember, though, was he didn't hide his Christian convictions. And he would occasionally give a little smirk and say... I will say this for my weaker brethren. I can remember him saying that kind of thing. But it was quite clear you were listening to a consummate genius who had a vast store of knowledge and was lecturing on it effortlessly. So it was a, an artistic treat, really. He died not long after that, didn't he? Yes, the following year. One group of people who mere Christianity has been particularly significant for is scientists. Now, Francis Collins, who's director of the National Institutes of Health and who was the head of the Human Genome Project, is just one leading scientist who was persuaded by reading this book that Christianity was more intellectually compelling and his prior atheism less so than he thought. Lennox says he can see why. He was excellent at distilling to get at the big ideas without compromising the very obvious central fact of Christianity that it is a supernatural uh, revelation. It doesn't fit into any kind of naturalistic interpretation of the universe. And Lewis, for me, was a genius at helping me to see through the weakness of materialism and naturalism. Someone once described him quite correctly as a thoroughgoing supernaturalist. And what was wonderful was that although he was not a scientist, he understood the issues that thinking people had raised and 
therefore he knew the philosophy of science much better than a lot of scientists that I had read. So it was very, very helpful, not only to humanities people, but also to people from the scientific side like myself. Perhaps the most high-profile example of someone who read Mere Christianity, and it was a dramatic turning point in their life, is Chuck Colson. He went from being special counsel to the president, he was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man, to going to prison over Watergate, and afterwards dedicated his life to prison ministry and prison reform. He tells his own story brilliantly. Uh, Here he is at Columbia University in 2008. The sound here is a little bit patchy, but we're confident that you will not find this a struggle to listen to. A number of years ago, I was in Australia, given the opportunity to speak live broadcast to the whole nation at the National Press Club in Canberra. And it was a half hour of grueling questions from the press after I'd given a half hour talk. I got right to the end, and this last person, I remember him standing up saying it was from Adelaide, newspaper, and he stood up and he said, Mr. Colson, you have one of the most fascinating lives I've ever seen. He said, you've lived two lives. He said, can you sum up what your life stands for? What Maybe you could give us just a, a word or two about the meaning of your life. And I looked at the clock in the 20 seconds before we went off live air. I said, the only thing I can tell you is what Jesus told his disciples, and that is he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's the story of my life. Back in 1973, Colson was finding his highly successful life deeply unsatisfying. Just as Watergate was gearing up, he went to see an old client and friend, Tom Phillips, who was head of the Raytheon Corporation. I walked in his office one day and still feeling kind of empty. And I looked at him and he was a completely different guy. He was a guy like myself who'd worked his way up the hard way, self-made man became uh, CEO of this corporation when he was barely 40 years old. Dynamic guy. And he was at peace, and he started asking me about my family. And Finally, I said to him, Tom, you've changed since I saw you four years ago. He said, yes, I have, Chuck. And then he looked up at the clock, and he didn't look me straight in the eye, but he said, I have accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. Now, i got to tell you, good people, I took a firm grip on the bottom of my chair. I'd never heard anyone talk like that. I'd gone to Sunday school and learned all the lessons you learn in Sunday school, but it didn't mean anything to me. He looked away, as I later found out, because he'd never done this with anyone before. I thought about that for the next three months, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so I went back to him one evening in August of 1973, and I said, Tom, you've got to explain this to me. And he said, before I do, I want to read you a chapter from a book. He read to me the chapter from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, entitled The Great Vice, The Great Sin pride. Proud man is always looking through life, looking down on other people and things, and therefore can't see something above himself, a measurably superior God. I listened to this chapter, and C.S. Lewis, if you know him, the Oxford dean, who was a great Christian apologist, as well as a great professor of medieval literature, I listened to that, and I realized he's writing about me. I thought I'd done all these good things because I wanted to serve my country, and I wanted to be a success at my profession, and it was really all about me. I left his home that night, and here I was, a former Marine captain, and yeah, I was known as the White House hatchet man, the tough guy. That wasn't very good when my book came out in Germany, and they translated it in German, Chuck Colson, the White House executioner. (laughs) I I didn't win many audiences when when I went to Germany with my book when it was translated there. 
But that night he, he told me of his own experience when he gave his life to Christ. And here I was, the tough guy, and I don't think I'd ever cried or I'd let anyone know if I did. I left his home that night, I looked back, and I got into the automobile, and I tried to drive away, but I could not because the tough guy was crying too hard. I couldn't see the road in front of me. I pulled over and sat there. I have no idea for how long, thinking about my life, thinking about could there be a God, and if there were, could I know him? And I just called out to him. I didn't know any of the words. I'd never seen any brochures about evangelicalism. I never knew there was such a thing. I knew nothing about organized Christianity, except I'd once in a while been dragged to church as a kid. But that night, for the first time in my life, I was sure there was a God. And I was sure he was hearing me. I woke up the next morning figuring I was going to be embarrassed. And instead, I couldn't wait to get my hands on mere Christianity and read it from cover to cover. And I uh, got out a yellow pad because I'm a lawyer. And I would have two columns. There is a God. There isn't a God. Jesus Christ is God. He isn't God. I went down that. And I went through the whole rational process. And I thought to myself, wow, I've never gone into a courtroom and argued against a mind like this. And so in the quiet of being off in the main coast, uh, away from Watergate, uh, before I was considered a target of the investigation, I simply quietly surrendered my life to Christ and asked him to come into my life. I will tell you, that's 35 years ago this past summer, nothing about my life has been the same since. Nothing about my life can be the same again. Uh, it wasn't an emotional experience. I've been studying as deeply as I know how to study, as, as fervently as I know how to study. I am convinced. Christ is who he says. I'm more convinced, as Malcolm Muggeridge once said, of the reality of Jesus Christ than I am of my own reality. Colson went back to Washington and the whirlpool of the Watergate scandal. The following year, he decided to plead guilty to something he wasn't being charged with and spent seven months in prison, an experience which transformed him further. I discovered in prison, away from all that power, the trappings of power, away from all the distractions in our culture, when you come face to face with yourself and God, that you find that which eludes you through life when you're seeking all the things of the world. And that's the paradox. And that's what I meant when I said that at the Australian press conference. You seek to save your life, you lose it, you lose your life for Christ's sake, you find it. And that's exactly the experience I had. Listening to Life and Faith, and this episode we're looking at the extraordinary afterlife of a series of World War II radio broadcasts which became C.S. Lewis's much-loved book, Mere Christianity. The mere in mere Christianity probably bears explaining. Obviously, Christians disagree among themselves about lots of things, and it was very important to Lewis that what he was describing was the common shared faith that Christians everywhere and at all times have held to, the bare bones version, mere Christianity. He knew those disagreements could be very off-putting to the person trying to figure out what Christianity actually is. But he once put it this way, that to write off what Christians believe because of those differences would be as if a man bleeding to death refused medical assistance because he'd heard that some doctors differed about the treatment of cancer. That he stuck to mere Christianity is probably a big reason why Lewis's book has stood the test of time so well. He didn't get bogged down in the controversies of his own time and place. He didn't get bogged down in internal kind of theological disputes, and there's one or two of those. That approach is very much reflected in the way we try to do things here at CPX as well. 
Now, in this second half of the episode, we've collected some stories from people of their own encounters with mere Christianity, long ago or very recently, and why it's mattered to them. We hope that might shed some light on why this book keeps mattering to so many people so many years on. Here's John Lennox again. When I first came across that book through my father, who'd got one, I suppose when I was in my early teens, and he just found it like a waterfall of fresh, cold, invigorating water. And he was so taken with it that he had a stack of them that he put in the glove compartment of his car. And those were days when it wasn't dangerous at all to pick up hitchhikers. I did a lot of it myself. And he would often engage such people in a conversation and they would receive a copy of Mere Christianity on the way out. So that uh, the, the book that Dad gave to these hitchhikers was really one of the best hitchhikers guides the galaxy in existence. And I maintain that it still is. I'd recommend it to anybody. What is it about Mere Christianity that's, that you would say makes it really relevant to today? Well, because the Christian message has always been relevant. It burst on the world 20 centuries ago. And because Lewis was such a clear thinker, he managed to capture exactly why it appealed from a logical point of view, from an ethical and moral point of view. And he would use everyday analogies and illustrations in order to build a bridge into people's minds so that they could see that what they were listening to was not coming from a distance, but actually was uncovering them and revealing them to themselves, so to speak, and making the Christian faith with its message of forgiveness and peace real in the context of thinking people. John, do you ever return to mere Christianity these days? When I begin to think I know how to write, I return to any one of Lewis's books, and that keeps me humble. Someone else who's gone back to this book again and again is Alanda, who says it was her favourite book for about a decade. My name's Alanda Joyce. I work at a bookshop in the Blue Mountains. My memories that I first read me Christianity when I was about 11 or 12, I picked it up because I'd read the Chronicles of Narnia and loved C.S. Lewis. So I picked it up thinking that maybe I'd like this C.S. Lewis as well. And then I read it, I'd say probably most years for a good 10 years after that, every time I picked it up. I found so much new stuff and new depth, probably partly because I read it for the first time when I was too young to understand a lot of it. But I think I found so much of the way that Lewis describes quite complicated aspects of faith to just have so much depth to them. So it sort of felt like it was giving me, I guess, just lots of light bulb moments of, of clarity and understanding of aspects of my faith that were maybe difficult to put into words, but Lewis was really good at doing that in a way, using really uh, concrete and practical and beautiful analogies um, that added a lot of meaning to, to my understanding. Alanda came to mere Christianity already a Christian, but it was a very different story for Iris and for Matt. My name's Iris. I'm currently studying a Master's of Applied Linguistics. Um, I have a really long convoluted journey of coming to faith. 
somewhere when I was deep in the depths of the in-between processing and questioning a whole bunch of things, uh, a couple of people gave me a couple different books um, which had, you know, big impacts on me. Uh, the Reason for God by Timothy Keller and Screwtape Letters, also by C.S. Lewis. Uh, my dad gave me Mere Christianity and I took it with me on holidays. I have a really specific memory of sitting in a courtyard in Granada in Spain uh, <laughs> one evening frantically writing notes, not in the actual margins of the book because it wasn't my copy, but on post-it notes, which I still have. My journey was never and, and still isn't characterised by moments of blinding clarity or sudden big shifts in perspective, but I do think that reading Mere Christianity was like a really significant step among a whole lot of steps that happened over the course of a number of years. And I think that what it helped me to see was that Christian faith can be rationally defended. It's not wishful thinking. And that then encouraged me to ask big, scary, difficult questions with less fear, because if God is real, then those big questions aren't going to like expose that he's a fraud or something. You know, they're, they're going to lead you to him. And he gave us our brains and he wants us to bring them along for the ride. <laughs> Even though I had some familiarity with what Christianity was, I think that it was a very immature understanding of what it was. And so it was a realisation that mature, intelligent people hold this to be true, not just because they want it to be, but because they are actually convinced that it is. My name is Matt. I own my own IT business just in a small country town. So I have a um, on and off, like loose group of friends, book club type thing. And uh, our friend Ethan, uh, who's actually a youth pastor um, up at Soul Revival in Kirawi, he joined in for, we'd actually done uh, Silence by Shisaku Endo um, together before. That was the first time we kind of did book club uh, with Ethan. And then the next time he had actually suggested we, we all read Mere Christianity. So it was four of us for this um, particular uh, incarnation of the book club, where there, there was Ethan, who, of course, um, you know, fully, fully Christian, and the rest of us um, who were atheists, essentially. I wondered why Matt and his mates were up for reading this Christian book in the first place. He said they were interested. Also, that Ethan is a great guy and he's just too nice to say no to. And what happened? Well, <laughs> funny story. Um, we're all Christian now. Um, <laughs> all four of us are Christian. Uh, like I, I'd actually started going to church uh, months before as well because um, I had it in my head like oh I just want to be a more community oriented person so I'll start going to church um, so stuff had been going on already at that point and um, this book uh, as well as a couple of other things I read and, and some people I talked to I had come round on the idea of Christianity um, you know being a general good in society um, coming from a fairly like hardline atheist background actually um, reading a lot of that new atheist stuff back in the early 2000s and I, I'd come around on a lot and then just after reading this book it just kind of occurred to me like oh I could actually just let this happen um give in to it so to speak and when I realized I still I still had a lot of questions um and this this book as well as uh conversations with people helped me understand that I wasn't gonna 
uh, get them unless I jumped in with both feet. When I asked Matt about something from the experience that stood out to him, the first thing he did was actually to quote from a different C.S. Lewis book, his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. I know that's not the book you asked, but this is, this is just a cracker here. A short sentence. Uh, which definitely applies to all, all three of us. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. Yeah, I wasn't very careful um, and let this happen. Thank God. Now, let's be upfront here. We'd be probably a bit disappointed if you listened to this episode and didn't feel at least somewhat inspired to go and pick up a copy of Mere Christianity for yourself, whether you've read it once or not at all or 20 times. Now, if you need a little bit more of a sense of why people are such fans of this book, here's Iris and Matt again, sharing some of the specific bits that they found really striking or comforting or confronting. I had fun going through my old post-it notes. <laughs> um, there's two chapters entitled Faith, and I'll sort of paraphrase a bit, but one of them says, now faith in the sense in which I'm here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your true self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. And another quote, and this one was about the process of coming to rely on God. Um, and he says, it may not happen to everyone in a sudden flash. It may be so gradual that no one could ever point to a particular hour or even a particular year. Uh, looking back, that was particularly um, meaningful, I guess, given the sort of trajectory that I was on then without necessarily realising I was on. Um, but it stood out to me even back then, which is pretty cool. <laughs> There's this part here where he says, uh, now I must turn to faith in the second or higher sense. And this is the most difficult thing I have tackled yet. I want to approach it by going back to the subject of humility. You may remember I said the first step towards humility was to realise that one is proud. I want to add now that the extra step is to make some serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues. A week is not enough. Things often go swimmingly for the first week. Try six weeks. By that time, having, as far as one can see, fallen completely back or even lower than the point one began from, one will have discovered some truths about oneself. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current. The good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Um, then he goes on to talk about some, some World War II references that are a bit dated now. But it was at a time in my life where um, I think a few people would kind of know this feeling where it's kind of like you're at the end of your old old life, at the end of the, your atheist life, I suppose, and you're just so tired, so spiritually worn out. And then you read things like, um, what is it, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's like, oh, I need that. <laughs> mm. 
Lewis's wartime broadcasts got traction at a time of great strain and uncertainty. And in the midst of a global pandemic, I guess a lot of us can enter into something of that mindset of what is my life really about? What really matters? What's really real? Lots of people have found this quite short book, Mere Christianity, a way into thinking about those questions. We want to conclude this episode, 80 years on from that first talk, with Lewis himself. In the final chapter of the book, he talks about that same idea that Chuck Colson went to in those 20 seconds at the National Press Club in Canberra, the idea of giving your life up in order to find it. The very first step towards getting a real self is to forget about the self. It will come only if you're looking for something else. Even in literature or art, no man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of impression you make. That principle runs all through life from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Look for Christ and you'll get him and with him everything else thrown in. Look for yourself and you'll get only hatred, loneliness, despair, and ruin. This has been Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. Now, thanks today to John Lennox and to Alanda, Iris, and Matt for sharing their stories. Thanks also to our producer, Alan Douthwaite, for putting all this together. Now, if you know a Lewis fan or someone you think might love this book, do share this episode with them. And buy them a copy of the book even. We think they'll thank you for it. Next week, we'll be celebrating our 400th episode of Life and Faith, looking back at some of the more memorable moments. We're looking forward to that. See you then. <laughs>